Thank you for joining us on this episode of Eminent Teachnology with Dr. Rochelle Newton and Drew Stennett, where we examine current and emerging technologies through the lens of diversity and equality. So hello, everyone. Welcome back to Eminent Teachnology with uh, Dr. Rochelle Newton and Drew Stennett. We have a very special guest today. We have Lee Reiners. Uh, we're going to be talking about fintech, which uh, when I first Googled this, uh, it looked like it was uh, information about how dolphins swim through the water with their fins. Okay, that's, a, that's, that's, that's my only bad joke. <laughs> it is about financial technologies. And uh, I think it's very fitting for this week. Uh, over the last uh, couple weeks, there was a big, uh, a lot of people got interested in financial shorting. So my big question for Lee is, should we be buying Game stock stocks right now? Game, nope. <laughs> game stock. Because apparently Absol people are becoming millionaires. <laughs> Absolutely not. Well, yeah. They, yeah. Uh, well, and, and just as many people have, uh, have lost everything, uh, it is, it, uh, you know, it's, we're recording this Friday, February 5th, and it has absolutely plummeted. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's nothing more than, than gambling yeah. what's yeah. been going on with GameStop. It, it is a fascinating story though. And I, and I can tell you, I mean, I haven't encountered a story that has captured a finance related story that's captured the popular imagination, like this GameStop story since the financial crisis. I mean, everybody yeah. is talking about it asking me about it um you know our center just hosted an event uh i run the global financial market center at duke law we just hosted an event yesterday on it um you know zoom event we had you know around 200 people oh wow um uh, uh, 10 people have been asking me about it nonstop. so uh so yeah it it's got you know sort of all the perfect ingredients if you will to to capture your attention and it's um and I, I kind of feel like whatever your narrative, you know, whatever your your preferred narrative is, you can look at this story and find it there, right? Yeah. Like you can, there's confirmation bias in this story. So if you think um, financial markets are rigged against a little guy, then you can find that there. Yeah. Um, you know, if you think, um, hey, I can make a, a whole bunch of money, you can find that there. So, um, so it's it's absolutely wild. But you know, I, I would advise anyone listening. Um, do not invest in these meme stocks. <laughs> yes, because uh, it, it's it's going to be a wild ride, and you're and you're probably not going to fare well at the end. But yeah, yeah. As I, what as I was, was really amazing about it was how high it went. I think it was almost four hundred and seventeen dollars a share, and like the last time I looked, it was like a hundred and something, and I think it's even dropped since then. Is, is is that directly related to Robinhood, or is that just any any uh, uh, brokerage firm would have had that same experience? Well, I mean, listen, Robinhood um, is a necessary ingredient in all, in, in all of this, um, for sure. And, you know, I saw this stat, which is absolutely incredible, that said um, over 60% of uh, Robinhood users had GameStop stock, like at, like at some point last week, yeah. which, wow. is, which is phenomenal. Um, and so, you know, Robinhood is, is a trend center in a lot of ways, but, you know, and, and as technologists, you two will appreciate this, but um, they've really applied uh, gamification mm -hmm. to uh, trading, right, mm -hmm. into yeah. brokerage accounts. And, we, and so we've seen this, of course, with social media, 
um, right for a while. So it's got all the, the the addictive properties to keep you coming back for more. It gives you that hit of dopamine, um, and that's what Robinhood does. I mean, it's primarily app based, so most people use it via their cell phone. Um, and it's got you know certain features. So after you place a trade, for instance, on the phone, there's like digital confetti that explodes, um, and it and it hooks you and it keeps you coming back. And uh, and listen, I mean, I also think. Uh, you know, none of this would have happened um, probably without the pandemic either. I mean, the reality is that a lot of people are bored. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, I'm not blaming like stimulus checks or anything like that, but there's also, you know, some people that have a little extra pocket change. I mean, either they're not going out and spending it or they got a stimulus check. Um, and so they took to, to Robin Hood. Uh, and yeah, so and I think ultimately that is where the spotlight will fall from a legal and regulatory standpoint is on sort of Robin Hood's actions throughout this um, throughout this whole thing. And and after GameStop went you know to over four hundred dollars a share, the very next day Robin Hood restricted customers from only yeah. um, placing sell orders, so you couldn't actually buy um, GameStop stock. And this bred all sorts of conspiracy theories that. Um, you know, Robinhood was in cahoots with the hedge funds that were losing their money because they were short. Uh, and I can tell you that the re- that's not true. Um, the The reality is is far more boring and mundane, and had it, it has to do with how um, stocks are are cleared and, and settled. So basically, um, the exchange of money for the shares, and uh, and that's and that's why Robinhood had to do that. Um, but nonetheless, uh, I think they will be uh, in the crosshairs here when uh, the the House Financial Services Committee on February 18th is going to have a hearing about all this, and um, yeah. and and Robin Hood is definitely going to get uh, wrapped across the knuckles, so to speak. So I had never, so personally, I've never used Robinhood before. And uh, when you called it the gamification of uh, trading, I was like, oh, like traditionally, I always think of gamification as good as sort of like encouraging people to do something that gets them a little bit like outside of their bubble. And, you know, uh, I don't know, just sort of as a positive thing. And then when you mentioned uh, Robinhood doing gamification of like stock trades, that gave me like the shivers. Like, I don't know if gamification I don't, I don't know if stock trades are where i want gamification <laughs> to be happening like that seems very i don't know it just seems very scary yeah i, I mean it, it's go ahead rochelle no no i was just gonna say i think that they're appealing to a new base because the typical bro- brokerage firms usually appeal to these stuffy white shirts you know uh you know white collar you know high dollar people because for a long time to buy a stock was such an uh, first, it was a dense process because it's not e- obvious what you should buy. You know, we've got all the different kinds of stocks. You know, like, you know, you need somebody to explain to you what a mutual fund is, what a penny stock is, what a blue chip stock is, and all these things. So you need somebody that understands all of that to help you navigate and what these these uh, these new kind of uh, financial brokerages have come with is to appeal to younger people who have less knowledge, but more time to expand and, and these things. So if you take the PlayStation model that they did, so they went from you bought a, 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 um, a DVD or a CD and you play loaded into your PlayStation you play. So everybody's been moving to a model where they're appealing to a more, more adept technology centered uh, population. Mm-hmm. No, that's, that's absolutely right, Rochelle. I mean, you know, Robin Hood bills themselves as facilitating the democratization of of trading right it's no longer the 
you know, the province of stuffy, you know, wasp, um, so to speak. But the, the problem is that um, should we like from a society standpoint, like, is that actually a good thing? Like, do we want, like, do we want that? Yeah. Um, and, and I, and this is, you know, ultimately this kind of comes down to your sort of philosophical bent, which is, you know, are you more sort of of the paternalistic sort where you say like, listen, um, you know, the average person, they just aren't, they're just not equipped to actively trade stocks and come out ahead. Right. And there's a whole I mean, at this point, it's, it's very clear that um, pretty much everyone is better off by just investing in a low cost index fund. Like the, the data is very clear, yeah. um, you know, a broad base, an S&P 500 index fund, low, you know, low fee. And, you, you know, and you you invest in that and then you don't think about it and you walk away and, and you're going to be better off uh, over time than if you are actively buying or selling. Um and uh, and so, you know, should we discourage people from from doing things that we know are going to harm them? Now, obviously, we have you know lotteries, for instance, which are effectively a tax on the poor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and we and if we got rid of that, you know, all, you know that would be that would help the poor, right? Yeah. Um. So I, you know, so I don't know. I kind of go back and forth on this. I mean, I, there are specific things that Robinhood is doing that. Um, I do think are problematic, which is, you know, one is they're providing margin to customers, which they're allowing you to buy and sell stocks with borrowed money, yeah. um, as well as options trading. And, and options are another way to uh, effectively um, take big positions with little upfront capital as well. So, um, so yeah, gamification is not always a, uh, is not always a, a good thing. And we're seeing that uh, play out here over the, over the past week, but, you know, try telling that to the Reddit wall street bets crowd that, uh, Hey, you're too dumb to know what you're doing. I mean, my, my, you know, my goodness, I just, we had a, we have a colleague at the law school, Jim Cox, who's, you know, arguably the the preeminent securities law um, scholar in the country. I mean, he's been Mm -hmm. doing this for a long, long time. Uh, He's taught, you know, thousands of students all who, you know, who've gone on to have just incredibly successful careers. And he was on CNBC the other day um, and he made some comment about um, the folks that were buying GameStop were like idiots. He did use the word idiots. Wow. Um, But it wasn't like a malicious, like the way he said it wasn't malicious, it was kind of offhand. Yeah. And he was saying that after that, he got all sorts of angry emails, including threats of physical violence. Um, from some folks. So there, you know, so there are some darker undertones to what's going on, you know, similar to what we've seen, unfortunately, in a lot of aspects of our society right now. Um, Politics, as you know, so, um, so I don't know what the long term ramifications, you know, a year ahead, when we look back on this, like kind of what will be the the lasting um, legacy. (laughs) Um, But uh, but it's certainly been a wild ride. <laughs> yes. So, so let me ask you this, Lee. So in, in the world where you originated, so can you talk to us a little bit about the Consumer Protection Act and financial regulations and how they apply directly to our fintech companies and these new, so like I remember when, um, I can't think of their name right now, the people that are doing the student loans, refinancing the student loans, they have taken a large swath of that market away from 
federal organizations or organizations who, who work, work with the um, uh, Department of Education and financial aid folks. So that's moved in that way. But what regulation controls what, uh, what can be a FinTech, what they can and cannot do? How are these things regulated? Well, uh, the reality is, is that in a lot of cases, um, they're not regulated or it's not entirely clear how they're regulated, which is great if you're a law professor teaching about this. Um, and, and if you're a law student who's interested in this, um, because it means there are opportunities uh, for you uh, once you graduate, there are certainly uh, many, many fintech firms who are in uh, need, desperate need of someone who understands the rules of the road um, so to speak, but, you know, I think it's kind of helpful maybe to talk about like what, first of all, FinTech is, right? I mean, I think most people have probably heard of it at this point, but, um, of course, you know, it, it means, uh, financial technology. Um, but, you know, technology has always been a part of finance, right? It's not as if this is necessarily like a new, you know, phenomenon, you know, Western mm -hmm. Union laid the transcontinental telegraph in, you Absolutely. know, 1860 something, and that allowed, um, you know, wire transfers, right? Money transfers. Yeah. Uh, then, you know, the, the ATM came along, right? Yeah. Um, in 1967. So, you know, I think you have to ask yourself, well, what's unique this time, right? What's different this time? Why is FinTech such like a big deal? Um, and what's, what is unique is that since the financial crisis in 2008, you've seen a number of different technology-oriented firms start to provide financial services. So the defining feature of fintech today is um, who is the one doing it? And the, the ones doing it are primarily non-banks. So it's innovation outside of the legacy financial system. And so if you just, you know, list, you know, some of the more prominent fintech names, for instance, um, SoFi. SoFi, that's uh, so, You know, SoFi, PayPal. Yep. Um, Coinbase, Square, um, right. all of right. these are right. all of these are non banks, right? Yep. Yep. Um, and that's raised a host of questions, which is well, if you're not a bank, but you're providing bank like services, shouldn't you be regulated like a bank? Um, and there's been a tug of war, um, you know, over the last ten years revolving around this question. Um, and, uh, and the way that our financial regulatory system is set up is that it's primarily very much entity based, right? For the longest time in this country, you know, only banks were the ones that were providing payment services. Only banks were the ones offering loans. Only banks were the ones, you know, accepting deposits or deposit like, um, products. And so, you know, regulating entities, you know, did make sense. But just like a lot of things, technology is sort of disaggregated elements of the banking process. And so there's just a whole lot of gray areas. So there's not really one you know, specific law that applies. There's a whole host of longstanding banking laws, regulations uh, that exist. And you know, people like me are trying to um, you know, parse through it all to understand what it means for these innovative companies. And it can be very frustrating if you're a fintech company, right? Because, um, you know, you're probably a technologist, right? You're focused on the technology, you know, growing your business, you know, scaling all the things that startups are interested in. And then you come, you know, boom, uh, head first into this very complex regulatory environment. Um, and that's one of the critiques is that, you know, it's actually stifling um, 
innovation and that we in that we need a more sort of coherent regulatory system and a national strategy when it comes to fintech otherwise you know that innovation those jobs are going to be created outside the US and that is that won't necessarily be a good thing but but on the converse and I'm not necessarily supporting that view but on the converse is like well you know these gray areas also allow for innovation to occur as well right it kind of creates sort of pockets where it's like well this is maybe it's legal maybe it's not you know who's who's to say but in the meantime you know we're going to grow um so that's where we're at but you know one thing i will i'll end on is um you know in the early days of the modern fintech movement you know post 2008 um you know you saw a lot of the of the sort of uber what i'll call the uber mentality you know the grow fast and break things right the silicon valley mantra yeah. Uh, and you, so you think about Uber, what did they do, right? They didn't go to New York City Taxi and Limousine Commission and ask for permission, right? They just rolled out their product and their servers and people loved it. Yeah. And, uh, and then, you know, policymakers were forced to adjust. Well, that strategy is not going to work or get you very far when it comes to financial services, because fundamentally you're dealing with people's money. Yeah. Um, and so you've seen a bit of a shift here um, over the last 10 years from you know this disrupt mentality to oh my god this is complicated let's partner with traditional financial institutions and that's kind of where we're at and you're seeing uh, more partnerships uh, more mergers and acquisitions um, you know Visa for instance tried to acquire Plaid recently that that broke up but um, but that's kind of where we're at now where you're seeing um, the traditional uh, financial sector start to roll out either fintech innovations in-house or acquire companies and, and talent. Um, and so we'll see, and we'll see where things head. I mean, it, we might be heading towards um, big tech, right? Where now Amazon and Google also get into the financial services space. So um, it's fascinating to, to teach because it's always, um, it's not static. Right? right. Things are changing constantly. And so when I teach fintech in the fall, I don't even bother like preparing my slides until like two days before class because something <laughs> might have happened in the interim that will have made me throw my entire lesson plan out the window. Yeah. yeah. You know, what's really interesting is I don't know if you remember, uh, maybe about 10 years ago, Walmart tried to uh, incorporate financial services into Walmart. And there was so much noise made about Walmart's attempt to do that. And so eventually they were beat back from the fence. But, you know, since then, you know, we've got Chime, we've got all these other different things that are popping up out here that are doing the exact same thing. Not to even think about these cash cashier stores where people who are underbanked or unbanked end up going to get their checks cashed because they don't have a relationship with a bank or their credit's not good. And even post Equifax breach, you know, experience been talking about you could increase your, your credit score by hitting this button, you know, just joining us. And so all of these things to a large swath of our populations is very confusing because nobody knows what's real and what's not. And depending on how often the commercial rolls, you might think, well, you know, if you see this commercial every five minutes, it must be a thing. But in, in, in real life, it needs to have further investigation. You need to do some more digging and pulling this apart to understand. And I think it's very important that we understand the piece about financial regulations because to even become a bank, and I, I work with a company to do some statistics for them when they were becoming a bank. I mean, they have to submit thousands of documents and have all, I mean, like people go through it over and over again, this gets rejected. You got to come back and rewrite it again. 
I mean, it's an onerous process. I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy to become a bank. So I can't imagine <laughs> what these smaller companies are doing and why the partnerships would. So why wouldn't Bank of America acquire one of these fintechs and put it under this umbrella? It doesn't necessarily like Visa services or some of the other services that it has. Why wouldn't it do that? Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right, um, Rochelle. And I do talk about the Walmart um, case study in, in my class. And you know, I think for some of the students, it's kind of hard to believe that you know, 10 plus years ago, sort of Walmart was the the boogeyman, right? Yeah. Everyone was, yeah. you know, complaining about Walmart was um, killing, destroying small businesses and upending local communities and, and stuff like that. Not to, and I'm not, you know, weighing in on the merits of that argument one way or the other, um, you know, but certainly now I think Amazon and others have sort of supplanted Walmart <laughs> as, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. as, that, as that villain, but the, but the, the point still remains you know, in the U.S., we've had a long-standing tradition of separating banking and commerce, meaning that we don't allow commercial firms to operate um, to provide banking services. And you know, there are a lot of good reasons for that. One is just you know concerns around you know monopolies and you know concentration of power and you know going back to the progressive era and the, you know trust busting and whatnot. Um, there's also concerns that. Um, you know, if you allow a commercial firm to operate a bank, you know, you're, you're, you're giving them access to deposits and, you know, and, and Drew and Rochelle, if you're anything like me, you ain't getting any interest on your deposits. Not right? a yeah. penny. Yep. So, so you're, you're, so then you're providing these commercial firms a very cheap uh, cost of, you know, a, a source of funding. And then they can use that cheap source of funding to maybe subsidize other aspects of their business, right? So if you want to grow another aspect of your business um, and it's not making money, that's fine because you still have access to um, these low cost deposits. And that would, of course, uh, adversely affect um, other firms that don't have access to deposits. So there are a lot of good reasons, but you know that theory is has been under attack, I would say recently, um, from some commercial firms who do want to get into um, banking. Uh, and there are others who, you know, for a long time have said that, you know, this is sort of antiquated. It doesn't apply um, in other countries. So for instance, you know, China, when you look at how um, Alipay or WeChat Pay got started, mm -hmm. right? That, that got started as an offshoot of existing commercial firms, right? PayPal too. Look about PayPal. When PayPal started, they were a subsidiary of eBay. And yeah. so now they yeah. become their own thing, you know, so you can't. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, um, so this, this whole notion of separating banking and commerce is, is very much in flux and an active um, policy debate. I mean, my, I, I am very much in favor of it. I will say that, um, you know, I think um, the dangers uh, associated with um, you know concentrations of corporate power are are um, are pretty significant, um, but nonetheless, I would you know encourage uh, all the listeners to keep an eye uh, on the space. Yeah. So, so let me ask you this: I, I do think you're going to have to come back because Drew is only going to give us a few minutes. You know, so we don't get very much time. With Drew. <laughs> he kind of keeps us on the straight and narrow. But you know, I think it'll be really important to talk about Bitcoin. But I think what's really more important than Bitcoin is blockchain. And so, you know, what we know is an immutable ledger. But can you talk more specifically about what blockchain is and what does it mean to cryptocurrency? And maybe even give us a little brief de definition of what cryptocurrency mm -hmm. is. 
Well, yeah. So, um, you know, Bitcoin was the first application of blockchain. So Bitcoin runs on blockchain technology. And blockchain is simply a distributed ledger. So uh, every node on the network has the exact same copy of the ledger. Um, there is a mechanism in place in which um, all the nodes will update that ledger um, without, you know, taking, you know, advantage of uh, another participant in the, in the system. And what ultimately it allows is for the very first time in history, um, people can transmit value between one another without the need for a intermediary. Right. And that notion is incredibly powerful and I think is very attractive to people when they first hear about it yeah. and what's driven a lot of attention, investment into into this space, the ability to, to you know, peer to peer payments or, you know, but I said payments, but does it, it could be value too, right? It could be, you know, could represent, um, you know, a gold, for instance, or something like that. Diamonds, could be yours. Diamond, yeah, diamonds, exactly. So, uh, you know, so they call this like tokenization, right? So um, you can, um, you know, sort of recreate physical ownership uh, via a digital token, and that token can then be transacted on a um, on a blockchain. So, so you know, without blockchain, we wouldn't really have um, cryptocurrency. Uh, there are now, you know literally thousands of cryptocurrencies. Uh, do we need thousands? No, we don't. Um, you know, I would say that it, we're still probably early, early days. I mean, the Satoshi white paper came out in 2008, I think. Um, right after the uh, first. Uh, right. Uh, yeah. Company, yeah. Yeah. Bank. Uh, big so uh, bank, and then uh, the financial. first the first Bitcoin block was mined in, in 2009. Um, so this is still you know, I would say very early stages. And, you know, we're not entirely sure how it's going to play out. But Rochelle, I think you made a good point, which is we do need to separate um, Bitcoin and cryptocurrency from blockchain because blockchain does have applications uh, beyond cryptocurrency. As I said, it allows the transmission of value. Right. Um, and so you've seen some companies experiment with blockchain and tracking the supply chain, for instance, a Walmart um uh has done this now i will say that we haven't seen too many successful commercial applications of blockchain and so uh, ibm for instance and rochelle i think you used to work for ibm um they basically just eliminated their entire blockchain division um and so it's it's still very much an open question as to whether blockchain will be profitable for anyone and that in fact may not be the point of of blockchain i mean the the kind of the premise is that it's sort of it disintermediates right so it's it's beyond anyone's um anyone's control but you know for the for the time being at least blockchain is principally being used for cryptocurrency and other sort of digital tokens um and the usefulness of all that i'm a bit skeptical of happy to get into it um further and i don't want to um 
attract any uh, any angry <laughs> any, <laughs> any, any angry Robin Hood fallout. Yeah, yeah, I don't want any angry uh, crypto bros coming after me here. Um, so, so I do want to raise one more thing before we get off, and we, we see mm-hmm. we can wrap this up quickly. So in the in the and, and so I want to just say this about uh, blockchain. So what's really more exciting to me about blockchain is that forever from when that first transaction happened through its entire life, it is never altered. So it's just added to, it's not, you know, you can't lay anything on top of it. And so for those people that are in this space, you know, thinking about where we're going with money and where these things are, you know, like, so, you know, you know, a lot of people, like we talked about earlier, underbanked or unbanked, you know, they have money underneath their mattress. This is one of those places where I think people need to think about what we do with what we call money today versus what money will look like in the future. Because, you know, with all the hacking and, you know, the cyber attacks and all that stuff, what blockchain offers is a really powerful thing because, you know, although you can steal my identity and become somebody else, if it's tied to a a blockchain kind of format, I have some safety. So you want to say anything about that before Drew hangs up on his boat? (laughs) So anyway, so yeah, in theory, you're you're right, Rochelle. Um, But the the irony uh, is that for most people who own cryptocurrency or have used cryptocurrency, they've probably acquired it through a third party, through an intermediary. Yeah. So, you know, for me, I have an account at Coinbase and Gemini, which are two US-based cryptocurrency exchanges. And so, you know, all I've done is just swapped out, you know, one intermediary, a bank or whatever, a broker, yeah. um, for another set of intermediaries. And there's no, you know, clear indication that like, you know, Gemini or Coinbase was somehow better or, you know, or more ethical mm-hmm. than, than, um, than the others. And so, you know, to use, to actually, you know, operate on the blockchain independently, you know, requires a level of technological sophistication that, that most people don't have. And, you know, and there's a reason we have intermediaries, right? I mean, that's, that, you know, functionally, that's what capitalism is all about, right? Like right. I don't make my, I buy my shoes from an intermediary because it's not worth my time to make my shoes. Right. Yeah you know um and i keep you know my i keep my money at a at a bank because uh i don't want to have to deal with the hassle of um keeping it you know under my mattress and the worry that comes with that comes with that so you know i don't get me wrong i mean blockchain is an incredibly powerful technology and it's not going anywhere i mean i'm not certainly one of these people that says blockchain is useless or you know crypt or bitcoin is going to go to zero you know i don't believe that at all I just, I just think we're kind of a, a ways away from that so-called killer use case, yeah. right. right? And when I, and when I talk to my, you know, like my friends from back home in Minnesota and whatnot, I mean, it, blockchain and crypto has no bearing whatsoever on their daily life at all. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You've got to really be nerdy or geeky to be into this stuff because this is not something you just come up on, you know, because most people are still, you know, hell, just traditional banking is still a, a, a headache. Most people don't even understand that. So when you get into these more advanced technologies, you know, there's a lot of people that are not going to be able to write, wrap their minds around this. So, I, you know, I think that's very important. But I think it's very important, Lee, also that you come back and talk to us because I think there's three or four other subjects we need to talk about that you have so much expertise on that we need to you need to share with the world so they know what's out there so you know bitcoin being one you know unbanked and unbanked fees you know like why i pay i get so little money on my interest and i pay so much like i even pay a maintenance fee to the bank what the hell is that for and the maintenance fee is more than they give me and then there are all these other things so i can't wait to hear your thoughts about that 
Yeah, I'm, I'm very excited I, I to hear that it. as well. <laughs> yes, I know, you know, because we want to figure out how to cut that part out. We want to get our dollar back from the bank. That's right. get, get, yeah, know, we're, we're all looking to make rate. more money. Yes, Amen. exactly. You know, so. Amen. Absolutely. Right. Well, Lee, thank you so much for coming and chatting with us. And we'll be getting you on the calendar really soon again. You know, so, uh, you know, there's so much more to talk about. And I think it's very important that people hear this from somebody who knows what they're talking about instead of us little purviewers just looking at over the, 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 the sunset trying to guess what this is this really is so absolutely absolutely happy happy to happy to thank you for listening to eminent teachnology if you like the show please review subscribe and recommend us to your friends and family we'd love to hear feedback from you as well you can email us at eminent at gmail.com see y'all soon